You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. On November 9th, 1996, a mother was sitting at home with her sister as her three sons were having a scheduled visit with their non-custodial father in Torbay, Newfoundland, Canada. Around 8.30 p.m., he would give her a call and let her know that he would not be returning the children home to her, their custodial parent, that night. Now, nearly 25 years later, she has not heard from or seen her ex-husband or her three children since. Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of Gone But Never Forgotten, the sad story of Adam, Trevor, and Mitchell O'Brien, and the mystery surrounding whether or not they may still be alive, and if so, where they might be. everyone and welcome to GBNF. Thank you for listening. We appreciate it and appreciate you as always. After last week's longer episode on Barry and Honey Sherman, this week's episode will be a return to our usually slightly shorter format. As always, let me bring in my lovely wife and much better looking co-host Julie. How are you today, Julie? Hey Lance, I'm good. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm doing okay. It's the weekend, right? Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> Julie also informed me that we seem to have been a little heavy on the murder cases of late and that she wanted to focus on a missing persons case. So, as a good husband and co-host, I got to work and that is why we are doing this case that we are doing today. Why do you prefer the missing person cases over the murder cases, Julie? I just feel like it's really easy to get sucked into murder cases when it comes to true crime. There's still so many things that happen in missing persons cases that I feel like it gets swept under the rug because it's not, and I quote, as bad, you know, but it is. It's just absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, I guess for me too, like I have to agree. I do like the missing person cases. Obviously, there's a little bit more meat on the bone, so to speak, when you're talking about a murder case, because generally there's a little bit more information out there. Mm -hmm. And I mean, at least when you have a missing persons case, there's still that hope that maybe that person is still alive. You're not talking about someone who 100% is not with us anymore. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's tell this sad story that involves three boys who, if alive, would be 39... 36, and 29 years old today. Mm 
Torbay, Newfoundland is a small town located on the eastern side of the Avalon Peninsula in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. The town is located about 12 kilometers north of the capital city of St. John's and is part of the St. John's metropolitan area. Today, the population is growing steadily because of its proximity to St. John's, with a population, according to the 2016 census, of 7,899. In 1996, when our story takes place, the population was 5,230. Yes, and one thing that can be said for those of you that are listening is that in Newfoundland, the types of crimes that are common are things like petty thefts, disturbing the peace, and lower level crimes. Things like kidnapping, murder, and things like that are not very common. So this case and other cases that we have and will cover for this show are indeed not the norm. On November 9th, 1996, Diana O'Brien was preparing her boys for a visit with their non-custodial father at his home. The routine was that he would pick the boys up early in the day and then drop them off at night. For those that do not know how things work in Canada, when a marriage or relationship ends that involves children, there are many different legal setups that can be put into place by the courts to do the best that they can to protect the safety, well-being, and homeostatic lifestyle of the children as best as possible. In this instance, Diana O'Brien was in sole custody of the children, which means that she had full physical and legal custody of the children, and she could make all of the important decisions in the children's lives. The other parent is often referred to as the non-custodial parent, and they usually have access to the children, which means that they do have the ability to spend time with their children still, sometimes under supervision and sometimes not. In this case, the father of the boys, Gary O'Brien, had the ability to see his boys and have them at his house, but he did need to return his children to Diana at agreed-upon times and visits would be held under agreed-upon restrictions. So here we are on November 9th. It is reported that Diana had spoken with Gary and let him know that their youngest son, Mitchell, was unwell and that she thought that Gary should just take the older boys, Adam and Trevor, for the day. Gary, however, took exception and demanded that she prepare all three boys for the day at his house. Later that day, late albeit, Gary showed up and picked up his three boys. Diana would say goodbye to her children and look forward to seeing them later. However, now, 25 years later, sadly, she has not seen them again. Every single parent's worst nightmare. Yeah, we have kind of half shared this on the podcast in the past, but Julie has a son and he's obviously now my stepson. And this has been, and always was, one of my biggest fears. It's scary to think about your child leaving home for anywhere and not returning. I cannot even imagine what this poor woman went through and is still going through to this day. Oh yeah, like that's definitely like, I feel for her, you know, as a mom, and even as a, a dad or a parent of any kind, you, you just never want that to happen, especially with the biological parent or someone in the family. I think it just makes it worse because you had that trust, even if it was just 1% trust, to let them go in the first place. Yeah, we'll get a little bit more into some of the statistics here in a second, but yeah, I mean... 
it's crazy to think how often this happens with a family member. Mm -hmm, Yeah. At 8.30 p.m. that night, Gary called Diana, and she expected him to tell her that he and the boys would be late for their return, as that was not out of the norm. However, the message that she received over the phone that night was much more gruesome. Gary told Diana that he would not be returning the boys to her, and that if anyone tried to get into his house, the former family home, it was rigged with booby traps and would explode if anyone came and tried to intervene in the situation. Diana immediately asked to speak to their children, and Gary responded by telling her that she could do so later, and he told her that she would learn what it was like to not have her children on her next birthday. He then hung up the phone on her. Diana's sister, who was with Diana at the time, promptly called the police to report what had occurred. As we all know, in cases like this, time is of the essence. According to Stats Canada from 1996, roughly 56,000 cases of missing children occurred in Canada. 78% of those were runaways. Abductions only accounted for 1% of missing children cases that were reported to police. Approximately 1,000 children were the victims of abduction in Canada in 1996, and two-thirds of those were parental abductions. Indeed, and time is of the essence because generally, those that have intentions on completing an abduction have a well-thought-out plan, and that grants them a head start against anyone that attempts to pursue them. In this case, one has to wonder if Gary and the boys were even at the house anymore when this phone call was made. Yeah, that's something that I didn't even really think about, you know? Odds are, with this being a small town and likely not too long of a response time, Gary was already the hell out of Dodge before he called Diana. The police, of course, rushed to Gary's house, and when they arrived, they realized that Gary had indeed not been bluffing. Gary had set up a makeshift bomb using two 400-pound propane tanks. The combined explosion that would have ensued if those propane tanks had gone off would have destroyed Gary's house, untold numbers of neighboring houses, and anyone that was remotely close to Gary's home. Yeah, the lengths that he went to here were pretty crazy. This was more than just threatening and spiting an ex-wife. This was a man that didn't care clearly if he died, his kids died, his ex-wife died, or any number of responders or innocent neighbors died in the process of this abduction. Sadly, he was not the first person to think along these lines, nor will he be the last. People in these types of situations and mindsets tend to have a me-against-the-world mentality combined with some serious tunnel vision. Any means justifies the end. For Gary, acting this way was not out of the norm. He has been described by those that knew him as suicidal with a history of violence, and he does have a history of psychiatric problems as well. Diana describes her ex-husband as unstable, introverted, and resourceful. So this is the type of guy that police were after and dealing with. To say that he was unpredictable would be an understatement. Back to those bombs. Diana told the media that the police said that if anyone had so much as rang the doorbell of the house, the house would have exploded. Diana, who has recently remarried and goes by Diana Saunders, 
says that she believes that the explosives were simply a red herring meant to delay and mislead investigators. She too believes that Gary and the boys were long gone by this point. The kidnapping of the three boys made international headlines and the hunt was on. Gary Joseph O'Brien was wanted and was an internationally sought suspect who had been charged with abduction, setting traps likely to cause bodily harm, breaching undertakings, and breaching recognizance. I want to pause here and really get into the emotions of what situations like this cause for victims and for families of victims. I feel like that is something that's left out far too often in stories like this, and we focus more on the suspect. Diana, still 25 years later, has not given up hope that her children are still alive and well. Diana has said that for five years of her life, she just shut herself away from society. She said that even the sight of a children's toy could be enough to trigger a breakdown. And who could blame her? Yeah, like I said earlier, I can't even imagine what this poor woman was going through. She said, quote, You have your highs and your lows, your good days and your bad days. Every time there is an occasion, for instance, like Mother's Day, I didn't leave my house. I would literally sit by the phone, and I did that for all occasions, even their birthdays, unquote. Over the years, Diana sought professional help and spent her time getting involved with organizations that focused on missing children cases. Back to our story. Gary was believed to have been driving a gray 1989 Ford Tempo with the license plate AMX635. About a year after the abduction, the vehicle's engine would be found at the bottom of Flat Rock Cliff in Redhead Cove on the east coast of Newfoundland. This was approximately 10 kilometers from where Adam, Mitchell, and Trevor were abducted. The engine's serial number was a match for Gary's vehicle. Even though this would be heartbreaking to find out and would definitely cause doubt, Diana, who knew Gary well, believed that this too would have been Gary trying to lead investigators astray. Sadly, when you read that, you do have to wonder if this is a case of a mom who's just holding out every single piece of hope that her children were and are still alone. I definitely agree. However, the rest of the car nor bodies were ever recovered, so it is definitely not outside the realm of possibility that this was a planned decoy by Gary. And more evidence, in fact, come to light in the form of an anonymous tip. That's right. And this so-called anonymous tip makes things even more haunting in my mind. In 1998, a woman from Thunder Bay, Ontario, would call police and tell them that she believed that she had babysat the boys for Gary. She knew intimate family details, including nicknames for the boys that had never been published. The tip was believed to be credible, but because it was anonymous, it could never be substantiated. However, investigators do consider Thunder Bay, Ontario to be the last known whereabouts of all four. Police would try tirelessly to make contact with the woman and find out who she was, but were never able to, and her identity and whereabouts remain unknown to this day also. Sometimes I wonder if listening to and taking in all of the true crime that I do really messes with my head, and that I just don't 
trust anyone or if I'm just wise to the twisted and sick things that people like this are capable of. But part of me wonders if this was just a case of Gary twisting the knife a little further into the wound. I mean, part of what he said to Diana was that she should learn what it was like to have a birthday, her 40th birthday, without her children. He definitely was vindictive, and what better way to give someone hope and bring everything back to the surface than to have an anonymous tip come in. Yeah, I mean, if you were this woman and you figured that you could potentially return three boys to their mom and help catch a suspect, why wouldn't you? Yes, that is what I think too. Definitely a strange turn in the case. I guess there is always the chance too that Gary could have found out that this woman called the police. Without the police knowing who she was, something could have happened to her as well. So many possibilities, and sadly the one that never came to fruition was the return of these boys to their mom. And of course, as I said, so many turns in this case. Even the family is divided on what happened and where Adam, Trevor, Mitchell, and their dad could be. Yes, Gary's sister believes that her brother and nephews are all deceased. Other family members, especially Diana, believe that the boys are alive and well. She believes that situations may have arisen that would make it impossible for her boys to get in touch with her. One of the ideas that has some legs is that she believes that perhaps the four of them wound up on some religious commune away from society at large and away from technology. Diana also believes that the boys could have been brainwashed and led to believe that their story was different than it really was. The idea of brainwashing is definitely something that I admittedly don't know too much about, but one that comes up often in cases like this. I always find it more confusing than anything, especially in situations like this one. I mean, we have all heard stories and know that things like this are possible, but the reality is that Adam and Trevor were relatively old at the time of their abduction. So unless they were fed lies over time that just settled in about their mother, perhaps something like she had died, I don't see how they would completely forget about home and mom and all of those things. The reality, though, is just that you never truly know. What we do know is that the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children have created multiple age-progressed photographs of the boys, with the last ones being made in 2017. We will attach these to the show poster so that everyone can see them. Yes, and as we are apt to do, we want to give a description of the suspect and the victims, even though a lot of time has passed because you never know what could trigger someone's memory. Adam Matthew O'Brien was 14 years of age when he disappeared. At the time, he was 5 feet tall, weighed 99 pounds, and had blue eyes and brown hair. On October 28th of 2021, he would be 39 years of age. Trevor Anthony Thomas O'Brien was 11 years of age when he disappeared. At the time, he was 4 foot 8, weighed 71 pounds, and had blue eyes and brown hair. On May 8th of 2021, he would have been 36 years of age. Mitchell Gary Marcus O'Brien was four years of age when he disappeared. At the time, he was three feet tall and weighed 46 pounds and had brown hair and brown eyes. 
On November 29th of 2021, he would be 30 years of age. And finally, Gary O'Brien was 40 years old when he allegedly kidnapped his three children. At the time, he was 5 foot 10 and weighed 135 pounds and had gray hair and blue eyes. On October 17th of 2021, he would be 65 years of age. As we always do, this is where we appeal to you. If you think that you may know something about the O'Brien family that is not already known, reach out to the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary at 709-729-8000 and let them know what you know. Yes, maybe you are out there and you know something. Maybe you are out there and you're the woman that made the call from Thunder Bay, or you know the woman who made that call from Thunder Bay. Or maybe you think that there is even a remote chance that you and your brothers could possibly be Adam, Trevor, and Mitchell. Make a call. There are ways to qualify and disqualify things like this. And we know that there is a mom out there who would love to be reconciled with you. Yes, as always, that is our goal. We hope that in some way, shape, or form, this episode will find someone who knows something and we can be some small part of an open case being closed. That would be amazing. Well, sadly, that is all that we have on the O'Brien boys up to this part. Hopefully, we can update this case down the road and tell a wonderful ending to a tragic story. What did you think of this case, Julie? Um, I mean, it's interesting, for sure. It's sad because, again, it's, you know, a... a married couple that divorced and the children are suffering from the consequences. Um, and I think that's just very, very sad. So I do hope there is some answers to this and I hope it sheds a little bit of light on, uh, you know, people who, who want more time with their children and how it does affect them and the other parties. Yeah. I mean, it's, I actually find the missing stories to be the most heartbreaking and the hardest because obviously like I'm a true crime guy. I like to like, Try to figure it out, get to the bottom of it, figure out who might have done something or what. In cases like this, we know pretty much who did what. So it's just, where are they? Like, where do these people always disappear to? And I guess that's what gets into my head. Oh, yeah. And even just, you know, the mom and the family never knowing. Like, they're holding on, holding on, holding on, holding on for hope. But, you know, how long can you hold on for? They need answers. Yeah, just terribly sad. But let's switch gears from sad to exciting. I do have some outstanding news for you and for the listeners this week. Oh, do you now? Yes, I do. Two pieces of news, actually. First, the minor one. We passed 1,000 Twitter followers this week. Woo! I know that's not huge news, but Twitter has been my baby while you've been dealing with the Instagram world. Well, I think that is pretty great news. So if that's the small news, I can't wait to hear what the bigger news is. Well, we officially have our first ever patron over on Patreon. Whoa, that is amazing news. Who is our first Patreon? Stacy Yapko Misra is the OG, the original goner. We probably still need to come up with some more awesome and less corny name for our patrons. <laughs> But that'll work for now, and definitely for Stacy. 
That is so cool. Thank you so much, Stacy, for your support. And nobody will ever be able to take away the fact that you were the first. Now, in the vein of some of my other favorite podcasts, I want to do something a little bit extra for our patrons. So each time that one of our patrons signs up for the first time, or they bump their support to a higher level, we're going to tell you something a little bit extra about them. Hmm. What do you think Stacy is usually up to when she listens to Gone But Never Forgotten? Well, I did some nosing around and I did see that Stacy is from Wisconsin. I think that she likes to listen to us while she finishes a hard day at work with a bowl of her favorite ice cream. Ice cream, eh? Why ice cream? Well, I read somewhere that Wisconsinites eat 21 million gallons of ice cream every year. I thought that was a lot of ice cream. Well, I gotta tell you, I think I need to move to Wisconsin then. (laughs) Well, hopefully there are other great things there aside from ice cream since, you know, I come with you. And I'm not a a big eater of ice cream. But I digress. Once again, thank you, Stacy, for supporting us and supporting GBNF. Anyone else that wishes to support us, please check out our Patreon page. And if we have any new patrons, we'll tell you what they're up to on the next episode. Until then, we will see you in two weeks for our next one. Thank you for listening to Gone, But But Never never forgotten. Forgotten.